Welcome to Women in Charge, a podcast about women who are in charge of things and the things they are in charge of. This week, I'm speaking to Christine Guillaume, the first black woman to lead the Harvard Crimson. Today, we talk about the pressures of being the first of anything, how to get the most out of an all-volunteer staff with finals and papers due, and how to gain the respect of your peers. Thanks so much for being here, Christine. Thanks for having me. So what are you in charge of? I oversee the entire operation uh, that goes on here at the Crimson. Um, So it's kind of an interesting job where we actually do have a managing editor who is kind of like our editor-in-chief, and we do have a business manager who oversees our entire business side. And what we like to say is that their jobs are to keep the Crimson running today. Um, Together, myself, the president, uh, the ME, and the BM make up the big three. And my job within that is to look at the Crimson on a long-term vision, so to keep the Crimson running tomorrow. Um, So I'm in charge uh, day-to-day. The most micro thing I do is I oversee the opinion page of the Crimson. Um, But in terms of macro things, long-term things, I oversee recruitment, diversity, uh, our financial aid program, um, kind of our alumni relations, and really strategize about sort of the digital future of the Crimson. So anything long-term strategy, is something that falls under me. Tell me a bit about your journalism background, either at the paper or or before that. Um, So I, in high school, was a reporter for my high school newspaper, which was uh, called The Classic at Townsend Harris High School in Queens, New York. Uh, There I was a sports reporter and I covered track, which was actually the largest sport at my school and the sport that we're most known for, which is awesome. Um, I did have a more uh, literary background in high school. I ran our literary magazine, and that was an awesome experience. I started out as the business manager for the magazine and then eventually became the editor-in-chief. So I kind of have two different publication backgrounds. Um, But throughout high school, I always wanted to be more involved in news reporting and the mechanics of running a newspaper. So when I came to college, the first thing I did was join the Crimson, um, and that led me here. How easy is it to join the Crimson? Uh, it is really easy, actually. Um, our comp process, which is the process at Harvard for you to get onto any club or extracurricular, um, is based on completion. So as long as you complete the requirements of the comp, you are elected onto the board that you're uh, trying to get on. Uh, the Crimson has 10 boards. They range from news, business, blog, uh, technology, design. So I pick the news board. Um, I finished the comp in a semester. The comp is a semester long. And then I became the race and diversity reporter for the Crimson. And after that, I was the central administration reporter with an amazing co-writer, Jamie Halper, with whom I covered sort of the presidential transition at Harvard. And then I ran for president. And here I am. So the interview process at the Crimson is uh, notoriously very intense for your role. Can you tell (laughs) me about that? Sure. Uh, Yeah. So uh, the process to become a leader of the Crimson is called the turkey shoot. And it is actually for all masthead positions. So it's not just the presidency that has to go through this process, but every masthead position. It is both educational and evaluative. Um, It has a series of interviews where you are required in one stage to talk to all the current leaders of the Crimson and kind of hear what their visions are for the organization. Then you go back and you write sort of a paper or a platform for what you want to do in your desired role. And then the next week consists of sort of flipping the switch. So now 
the current leaders of the Crimson ask you questions about your paper and your platform. And so it is like a month long process. It is very intense. But at the end of the day, we end up with a team of leaders who really have considered thoroughly what is best for the Crimson as we move into a more digital age. Um, and you learn a lot about the organization and you learn a lot about what's required of you in your role. And um, yeah. So one thing, um, you know, you said you, you've thought a lot about you were the diversity reporter. And one of the things that you're um, tasked with doing as president is thinking about diversity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. At Slate, I know, because um, we also think about diversity and inclusion a lot. And one thing that we have um, talked about and made some changes to is actually our interview process, uh, our mm-hmm. interviewing process. Is that something, is the is the turkey shoot something that you think is up for uh, possibly changing or evolving? Is it something you think has been part of the process of, of maybe keeping certain people or groups out of the paper? I ran the Diversity and Inclusivity Committee uh, in my sophomore spring and junior fall of being on the Crimson. And one thing that we did think about was recruitment and retention um, and who we recruit into the building and then who stays and who runs for leadership positions. So that's something that we think about constantly. Um, We've instituted, for example, implicit bias training for all of our leadership. And that definitely plays a role in not only sort of our newsroom culture and how we treat each other, but also when we think about hiring and choosing the next team of leaders for the Crimson. So, yeah, that's something we definitely think about. How did you approach, like, sort of, you heard from the people who are already leaders about what they thought the direction of the paper should be, and I assume you had your own vision. Maybe it was related mm-hmm. to theirs, and maybe it was different. Like, how, how did you approach that kind of, like, well, I think I think it should be a little different? <laughs> For things that I had different perspectives on uh, than the current leadership, I definitely proposed my own perspective. Um, I think my leadership style and something that I am very big on is sort of understanding where people are coming from. And so if there was something that I had questions about or disagreed with, I always sort of asked follow-up questions and made sure I understood where the other person was coming from. And that's something that I do on the day-to-day basis of my job here at the Crimson. Um, And so I think that was kind of my approach to that. So the Crimson has a really long and storied history. It's been around since 1873. Former uh, Crimson presidents have gone on to be actual presidents of the United States. How does how does the weight of that history play into how you approach the job? Like, what are the traditions you just wouldn't touch, and what are the ones you kind of can't wait to topple? <laughs> um, it definitely is a lot of pressure. I think it's a it's a lot of uh, responsibility for everyone, especially at the top of the masthead and thinking about the fact that we have this 146-year legacy to live up to. Um, and so we'll often joke about, oh, like our, my managing editor, Angela Fu, will often joke like, oh, I must like get some big scoop because like the managing editors before me got big scoops and I must match up. Um, but I think it's really about, uh, you know, we joke about sort of living up to legacy and sort of making sure that we're you know, uh, keeping up with what our alumni have done. But at the, same, I, at the same time, I think it's more about providing the educational experience to our editors that the Crimson has continued to provide throughout all of its 146 years. Um, the Crimson has a variety of opportunities that people can get involved in, whether you're interested in traditional journalism or you're interested in coding the back end of our website. And I think one thing that I'm excited about continuously is making sure that we're providing those really valuable experiences for everyone, whether you're on the business side or the editorial side. 
And if the traditional way that a board has been run for several years is not providing that educational experience that is necessary for the demands of today's industries, then I'm excited to kind of strategize about how we can better organize our boards and organize the activities and the projects that we take on to better equip our editors with the tools to carry themselves in the industry. So one thing is um, for the multimedia board, something that we've been thinking about for the last two years, and a lot of credit goes to my predecessor, Derek Shaw for thinking about the multimedia board, is how we can adopt a renewed focus on photojournalism how now photos are not just in service of text on our website or in our paper, but that actually photos can tell stories and videos can tell stories on their own. And so one thing that we've been thinking about really critically is restructuring the multimedia team so that our staff can go on to in the industry of journalism to actually produce standalone pieces or standalone uh, photo essays or videos and have the tools and equipment and skills to do that. Do you look to other... uh college papers? Are you looking to, to to the New York Times? Like who, who, who are you guys looking to to model yourselves when you're th- like approaching multimedia journalism? I think we're looking across the industry, both at student journalism and also um, at professional journalism beyond colleges and universities. Um, there's inspiration to be taken from everywhere. And so um, I would say both. You're only the third black president and the first black woman. All of journalism is undergoing this change, the sort of dawning on mostly white male editors that their newsrooms mm-hmm. have to diversify in order to cover the stories that matter most. What are the stories that the Crimson has missed over the years due to its whiteness and maleness? Um, I think that um, the stories that a staff covers definitely can reflect the perspectives and angles of their staff, of the actual composition, whether we're talking about race, gender, sexuality, socioeconomic status. Um, That's something we think about every day at the Crimson. What stories are we potentially missing because we're missing a perspective? Or do we not have a reporter who comes from a certain background who can cover a story or present or pitch a story in a certain way? Um, Definitely over the years, there have been communities on Harvard's campus and surrounding Cambridge and Boston that have been underserved by our reporting. Um, That was very prevalent um, in perhaps I would say like the early 2000s, definitely. Um, but, or even going back further, um, we do a reunion issue every year. And when I speak on the phone with alumni, they'll often say, oh yeah, the Crimson like never really engaged with the African-American community on campus um, back when I was in school in 1960 something. So like those kinds of things are definitely part of our history and things that we keep in mind as we do our current work. And one thing that I'm really proud of is that we have, I think, assembled a staff that is very conscious of the gaps in our coverage that we might have. And we also have, I think, a more diverse staff than even just a few years ago. Um, And so being able to think about and discuss those issues within our own uh, community here at the Crimson has helped us, I think, to outwardly sort of examine our coverage and see what holes do we have here? Where can we do better?
you are involved in the opinion pages. I read in the Times, I think it was in the Times, that your father, when you were growing up, your father had you read Paul Krugman and David Brooks so that you got both liberal and conservative point of view. How how important is ideological diversity to you when you think about opinion in the Crimson? Extremely important, 100%. That's something that we think about uh, in our comp- in the composition of our editorial board all the time. Uh, something that I think it comes across in national news is that college campuses are often labeled as liberal bubbles. Yeah. Um, so we're consistently conscious of sort of who's speaking in our editorial board meetings. Are we sort of, do we have conservative voices? Do we have moderate voices? Um, which frankly is often more realistic at a campus like Harvard that will have moderate voices. Um, and also, so not only in our in our actual board meetings, but in our op-eds and our columns, because those are actually open to all of the student body. Anyone can submit an op-ed and anyone can apply for a column in our editorial page. Are we presenting a balanced sort of array of coverage of different opinions on different issues? And I think that's something that we have actually done very well in uh, the last few, every, every year since I've been on the Crimson, I think we've had a really good representation of perspectives and ideological diversity on this campus, especially in our column section. Um, In our op-eds, whenever there's something that happens on campus, we strive to provide a balanced set of coverage of different perspectives. And I think we also do that very well here. One of the things that was cited in all the news stories, it's just so interesting to me reading the news stories about you getting this job. They cited so, so many of the reports cited the things that you would be focused on, which are like really the same things that were focused on at Slate. And I think that so many news organizations are focused on. So so one of them is is your plan for alternative revenue streams, mm-hmm. which, again, is like something I think every news organization is trying to figure out. How does the Crimson make its money now? And, and what are some of the paths you're looking at? Um, So as I mentioned before, we have a business board. Um, So that's a team of associates who work to drive revenue streams for the Crimson in order to keep us running both today and tomorrow. Um, So, of course, we have an advertising department and they focus on print and online advertising. Um, We have a strategy department that is consistently generating new ideas. We run journalism conferences is another thing that we do, which is a really great opportunity for us to kind of spread our educational mission as well as generate revenue for our publication. And we're thinking about considerably how we can navigate the way that journalism is moving away from print and transitioning to online and how we can keep our business sustainable uh, in that process. So that's something that our strategy department is consistently thinking about and generating new ideas for and reaching out to people, both local businesses and national businesses that may want to market to Harvard students and our readership in how we can navigate that new territory. Do you put out a print paper every day? Every single day. We actually are the only college newspaper to have printing presses in-house. We have them in our basement. We are Cambridge's only breakfast daily, so Monday through Friday we're printing a paper. How attached are you to that? Extremely attached. (laughs) Why? (laughs) Tell me why. Um, The printing presses not only provide this opportunity that no other college student has, but they also have such a cultural value at the Crimson. I think, you know, sometimes I'll be sitting in my office at like 11.30 a.m. on a Saturday and the doorbell will ring and it'll be alumni who have come back to come see the presses. And the fact that the presses hold such a special place in the hearts of so many Crimson editors like means a lot to me. Um, one tradition that we have is um, 
we do something at the end of every year called Final Press Run. And it's when the outgoing masthead prints their last paper and everyone stays until the paper is printed on the presses. And then we get copies of the paper and you pass them around to editors who will be both leaving the Crimson and who will be taking over the Crimson or who have just started on the Crimson. And people write on the papers in the press room uh, letters, kind of little notes like, uh, oh, this was my favorite memory on the Crimson with you or you will be missed because you're such a talented reporter or editor or whatever it is. Um, And those traditions that take place in the press room and that take place as we're watching our work actually run through the machine are really special, not just to me, but I think to every crime ed who has been able to be a part of that experience. So how much of what's on the website then is like is is exactly what's in the paper? Are you doing web only stuff? Most of it is exactly what's in the paper. Um, During the school year, it is exactly what's in the paper. Uh, we don't publish many web-only pieces. We act- we transition to web-only over the summer just because um, I'm the only t- leader required to stay here over the summer. And we have a summer staff of editors who stay, but we don't have the full team here. Um, so we do a web-only uh, publication in the summer. And then uh, we don't publish any explainer features that we write or things that we don't publish in our paper. But for the most, like, Generally speaking, like everything online is what appears in our paper. So you're talking about being in your office at 1130 on a Saturday or on the on the weekends. And everything you guys are doing is volunteer, right? Yes. How do you get this is going a bit more into like sort of your management style. But how do you get (laughs) a bunch of college students who are there um, and not getting paid to to work hard? Well, one thing is, um, even though it is all volunteer, we do have a financial aid program. Uh, It's something that we're really proud of here. So any student who is on financial aid at Harvard College is eligible to receive um, some compensation for their work on the Crimson, um, which is really cool. Um, But to your question about this being a volunteer organization and people spending their time here, it's extremely incredible to see the amount of time that people are willing to put in. Um, when this is really this is not an advertised paid opportunity, it's not a job, even though it can feel like one. My my job is certainly absolutely hundred percent a job. Um, I think people are motivated by the community that we provide here at the Crimson. Um, I think that because everyone is sort of in this learning experience together, um, I think that's what motivates people to strive to do better, to push the Crimson foundries further. People have a lot of investment in this organization in terms of uh, not only sort of the content that we produce, but also the culture here. Also thinking about sort of what opportunities, as I was saying earlier, we provide to all of our editors um, in terms of just both reporting, but also the tech team, for example, the business team, for example. And I think that's what motivates people. I think also just like the way that the Crimson has an incredible readership that stretches way beyond just Harvard, Cambridge, and Boston. We are read nationally. Last year, our website had 15 million page views, which was awesome. And I think people are motivated by the fact that they know that their stuff is getting read by people who they haven't even met before or who they don't necessarily see in their next lecture. Um, The fact that our work can actually have national impact so one thing we've been reporting on is the hostile political climate facing higher education in Washington. And I think the reporters who are involved, for example, in that area of coverage are really invested in that 
thread because they know that people beyond just Harvard will be interested in it. Yeah. How many people report to you? We have 320 active editors. Not many of them report directly to me, which is good because 320 would be a lot. Way too many. Um, I am directly in charge of the technology board. So the tech chairs will report to me. Uh, the editorial chairs also report to me, although they're the, both the tech chairs and the editorial chairs are really in charge of their own boards. Um, and then I also oversee design and multimedia on a very high macro level. The people who run our recruitment efforts, our individual board recruitment teams, uh, they're called comp directors and they report to me. Um, our diversity and inclusivity chairs report to me. And then I work day to day with my partners in crime, the managing editor and my business manager, Angela and Charlie, respectively, um, who are out, absolutely outstanding. And so I wouldn't say I, 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 don't, I wouldn't phrase it as they report to me. I view the three of us very much as a team. But if there's ever a disagreement between the content and the business side of the newspaper, I am the mediator. So that's fun. <laughs> that's fun. <laughs> um, it's definitely stressful when you're too... Uh, Right and left hand uh, partners are definitely disagreeing over something, but it is it is fun to kind of engage in those discussions about how we keep our business separate from our content as we're struggling to kind of we're not struggling or strategizing rather about how we can navigate the digital uh, direction that journalism is moving in and generate revenue while still maintaining journalistic integrity. It sounds like you have a, a ton of people reporting to you. How much are you delegating in your role? A lot. Yeah, a lot of delegation. Um, there are definitely things that I do on my own, and there are projects that I pursue. Um, particularly when I'm working with alumni, those are projects that I'll take the lead on. But definitely a lot of delegation. I think one one thing that is critical to the Crimson is that everyone here feels ownership in the work that they do. And so, if I'm in very hands on on like 15 different projects, then people won't feel. I think it's important for editors who are not perhaps like leading the organization to feel like they are really contributing and to actually contribute to sort of what the Crimson does. And so a delegation is really important in that and giving people agency over what they individually would like to improve on or change about the organization. So traditionally uh, at at most journalistic institutions, there was like a pretty impenetrable wall between the business side and the editorial side. Business side can't affect what uh, decisions are made about the journalism. That's changed a lot um, in the past decade. It's changed certainly at Slate. Um, and I think it's it's really changed all over. Not that um, I don't want to imply it's like that the business side tells us what we can and can't write because they don't. But we all mm -hmm. have much more we're much more integrated in understanding like kind of what the business imperatives are. And uh, all kind of on the same team and trying to create a sustainable journalistic operation. How does that how has that changed at the Crimson, if at all? Oh, that's absolutely, I think, very true at the Crimson. I think one thing that we consistently try to do is make sure that both our content and our business sides, especially the leaders of both sides, understand where each other like each other's interests are and understand that everyone is working for the best interest of the Crimson. Um, one thing that we've developed recently is our sponsored content suite, which means that there are clients who 
might traditionally buy advertisements in the paper, but instead want a more customized experience. So they ask us to sort of help them write a sort of article about their product or about their business or about something that they're doing. And then we publish it in a separate part of our uh, of the Crimson, entirely separate from our editorial content. So since it's it's completely new, um, it's something that when we expand it or when we think about new ways to sort of creatively do sponsored content, it's something that we definitely want to bring the other side of the building in on conversation about and make sure that it is consistent with maintaining our mission of journalistic integrity and making sure that the Crimson is still the Crimson as its institution and not veering away from what it is actually for. Um, And so that's something that I think we navigate every day as well. Like you've only been a boss for a couple of months. What are the things Mm -hmm. that you've realized, hey, I'm good at this. This is like something that I'm like, it comes naturally to me and I should just keep doing this. And what are the things that you're like, eh, I'm not that great at this. Maybe I should have someone else do it. Oh, yeah. Anytime I have to make any sort of financial projection, I go over to Charlie, who's our business manager, and I beg for help. Yeah. Um, That's one thing I've definitely learned. Um, Bad at math. But uh, I always knew that, actually. Um, But on a more serious note, uh, things that I've learned that managing 300 people is really difficult um, and requires you to really invest time into thinking about and uh, everything that people are sort of working through, challenges they may be facing, and invest time on meeting with people face-to-face and listening to them. I think uh, one thing that I've definitely learned in this role is that people need to be able to feel like they're being listened to and understood, and that's something that I try to do on the day-to-day because a lot of my job is people management. Um, I think another thing that I've learned is sort of thinking about the balance between the ideal and the realities of what we can achieve in a year. Definitely, as everyone's running for leadership positions, everyone has all of these ideas that are really, really cool and really, really awesome. But the reality of the job is that you only have it for a year. And so it's going by so incredibly fast. And I didn't think it would go by this fast. But something that all of my predecessors told me was if you want to start a long-term project, it has to start on January 1st. It cannot start in March because the time you get to March, it's going to be like, it's going to be the summer, people are going to leave, and then you're going to run the next election process in the fall. Um, So something that I've learned is thinking about long-term strategy in a very, very strategic, calculated way that is also logistically sound. Um, So not expecting like the world of people, because you have to understand that people both have an investment in the Crimson and investment in their academics and extracurriculars, and also making sure that you're, you're delegating to people things that they feel like they can do and feel empowered uh, about. What was the Jan 1 thing you came in with? One of the big projects we're pursuing this year is sort of a revitalization of our website. Um, because as I said, uh, the Crimson undergoes this year to year turnover. Sometimes you have years where there's like coding that isn't super sustainable. Um, it's kind of just a quick fix for a bug. And so one thing that we're doing is we're doing a critical examination of our code and trying to make sure that it's sustainable going forward. Do alumni help with these sorts of projects? Like if there's an alumni who's like, you know, at Apple now, like, can you, (laughs) can you get their expertise? Mm hmm. Uh, we definitely consult with alumni. We reach out to alumni for advice. Um, 
which is very helpful. We do that also um, with really anything we're pursuing on the Crimson, whether it's a business initiative or something um, that maybe our news leadership is struggling with. Like we'll reach out to alumni who are involved in our um, or who still have connections to the Crimson and we'll say, hey, can you help us kind of strategize about this? Alumni definitely don't do any of like the day-to-day work at the Crimson. That's all student run, but we... We really like to sort of ask for advice from people who have been in these roles before us. Something that I do is I, I probably am on a call with a former president at least two times a week. Um, Derek, who's my direct predecessor, is someone that I text every other day. Um, and one thing that everyone has told me is like, if you're running into a problem, I guarantee you someone in the last at least 10 years has run into the same exact problem. So that's something that we we do. We look for advice pretty often. But all the work that is done here is very much student run. Uh, something that alumni have always emphasized to me is like, you know, you can ask us for advice. But something that we're very mindful of is this is your year on the Crimson. And we want to make sure that you're doing what you think is the best decision, not what we think is the best decision. When you're talking about managing your staff, 320 or just the smaller but still quite large group of people that sound like report directly to you, um, you know, work-life balance is an issue in every office. I'm assuming on a college campus it's a it's a real issue. Um, everybody has their um, school, their their academics to worry about. How do you approach that as a manager? It's a daily challenge. Still learning how to do that. Um, I think one of the benefits of being an upperclassman um, is that you kind of have a more focused vision of what your academic uh, study will be on um, in college. I think one thing for sure that has changed about me from freshman to uh, now my junior year is that when I came in in my freshman year, it was kind of like, oh, like all these opportunities, let me take a bunch of classes that like I'm interested in and I don't really know if I want to focus in it, but I'm interested in it. And then as I've progressed throughout my academic career, I've sort of narrowed into areas of focus that I know I'm very interested in. I've invested a lot of time in them. That's not to say it's gotten easier. In fact, it's definitely gotten harder. But I think one thing that really helps me is that since I know concretely what my interests are and what my academic um, goals are, um, lessens the uncertainty on that end and allows me to sort of have a very focused uh, course schedule that I know that that I'm very invested in and that I know I can also handle while also doing this job. It's definitely difficult. I have a 20-page paper due on Friday, and I have no idea how that's going to get written. The oh, day no, before, I'm keeping you from it. <laughs> <laughs> the day before, I have an eight-page paper due, and I also have no idea how that's going to get done. But... Um, it is one thing at a time, uh, and it's just every day is a different challenge. You wake up in the morning, you wake up to 20 different emails, uh, and each of them are telling you you have to do 15 different things today. Um, and it's about just kind of mapping out on the day-to-day basis, what can I achieve today? How do I best optimize my time? And it gets done somehow, some way. One funny analogy I use for my job is, you know those old like mini clip games where you would sort of move the cursors that you caught things before they fall on the ground? Yeah. That's kind of my job. (laughs) So pretty often people will be like, oh, I'm having trouble doing this. Like, how do I how do I navigate it? And I'll be like, okay, let's fix that. Or like some big news event will happen on campus. And I'll be like, okay, like, now I need to be hands on to help 
the managing editor, Angela, however way I can. Um, and so it's those types of sort of being very flexible and being able to sort of make time for people that I think uh, characterizes what my job is all about. So tell me, I mean, being a mentor, I mean, I, I don't I do not mean this in any sort of condescending way, but you're a junior in college. I don't I, I know. don't know that I have the skills to be a, a great mentor. How how do you think about mentorship? What does it mean to you to mentor someone? Mm-hmm. I think one thing is like when you think about mentorship, you can have not only one mentor, but a team of mentors. And sometimes it helps to have a mentor who might be closer to your age and might have most recently gone through what you've been going through. Um, And I certainly don't presume any expertise beyond like the college experience. That's definitely not something that I can guide people on. Um, And I think um, one thing is like a mentor on a student level is being able to understand that what we were talking about before, the challenges of balancing extracurriculars as demanding as the crimson or as rigorous as reporting and also academics and other commitments on campus or thinking about how to navigate summer opportunities, whether we're talking about uh, journalism or business or things like that. Pointing people to the right people to talk to is a big thing also as a mentor. If you don't know something or if you don't have an experience saying, oh, if you're interested in finance, actually Charlie would be a really good person to talk to uh, or things like that. One thing I'm curious about is what authority looks like at, at the Crimson. It seems like it could be a challenge to get your peers to sort of uh, respect your authority um, when you're all sort of in the same stage of life. Is that a challenge? Yeah, that's definitely a challenge because we're all students. Um, but one thing is that when you've been in the Crimson for a, maybe even just a year or two years, you can kind of see how the organization works. And I think one thing that I've always had from when I started here to now is a kind of respect for the senior guard that is in charge because they've been here the longest. They kind of know what the vision for the organization is, especially after going through the shoot process. You really do have an understanding of the Crimson. But I think actually respect comes from, and I keep going back to this concept of understanding, but respect comes from learning how to be a leader who is not only in a position of authority, but also a human being and showing empathy and showing a sense of understanding and wanting to listen and also teach and educate uh, younger staff, uh, writers or business associates or coders or whatever it is. And I think that one way that at least my leadership team, whether we're talking about myself, the managing editor, business manager, editorial chair, associate managing editor, anyone on what we call kind of the super board, who's the top, really top of the masthead, um, that we all, I think, think about really critically is how do we best support and how do we understand the ideas that the, our, our younger staff writers may be generating? And how do we make those feasible and possible and also in line with the Crimson and what we do here? Um, so I really do think it's about having respect for the people that you work with and the people that are working also for you. Uh, that all sounds <laughs> really right to me. Uh, being the first anything comes with its own pressures and challenges, I imagine. I've, I've no, I have not, never been the first anything, um, so I'm just <laughs> assuming here. But what do you see as the big challenge of your tenure and, and the big opportunity? Yeah, uh, definitely being the first black woman was very daunting, um, also an honor and a privilege, but also a testament to the fact that we haven't had 
as many leaders of color as we should have had in the last however many years, oh, 146 there, uh, that we've been in existence. Um, so it's, it's, it's a sort of really symbolic, I think, moment, but also a moment that I think everyone in the Crimson really reflected on and realized when they saw the headline, 146 history, first black woman, like, oh, like, that means we need to do better. Um, and I think the challenge will be this year and going forward, um, not only thinking about sort of our content and our digital initiatives and whatever and all of those things, but also the people that we are bringing into the Crimson, the people that we are supporting and educating and uh, giving opportunities to um, and making sure that we are supporting a diverse staff and we are making sure that we're conscious of sort of elements of our culture that can be improved or elements of our coverage that can be improved on the way that people feel at the Crimson, the way that people feel ownership in the Crimson and what we do here in our future. And that requires a diverse staff. Um, So, yeah. Christine, thank you so much for joining me. I really loved hearing about your job and the Crimson. Thank you so much for having me. Um, It's an honor to be here. That's it for this week's episode of Women in Charge. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. That helps more people find us. And please send feedback on the show and suggestions for guests to womenincharge at slate.com. Thanks to producers Jessica Jupiter and Cleo Levin. Thank you to Gabe Roth, editorial director of Slate Podcasts, and June Thomas, senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. And thank you all for listening.